0: Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Women. Welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host Hunter Beelis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we'll face on our journeys to glorify God. Today we get to talk about the story of the New Testament with Dr. Brad Matthews of Covenant Seminary. If you've spent time thinking about how the 27 books of the New Testament with various authors work together to communicate one congruent message, this combo is for you, my friends. You're going to walk away from this conversation with tools for better understanding and studying the New Testament and, better yet, with your heart's affection stirred for Jesus. Brad, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Thanks for having
1: me. It's great to be here.
0: I am really excited about this series, also, really intimidated by this series because I don't know what we were thinking. We have a gal on our team who actually has her degree from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and she's like, Why don't we do like a seminary sampler? And I'm like, That's a great idea, but I'm not going to lie. Reading through 156 pages of your class notes, I was thinking, what have I done?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know how to say other than that's That's a common thing that a lot of students feel when they first show up. And it's like, we're normal human beings. And I'm quite confident that you and I can have a really great conversation. I don't know. Yeah. How do I respond to, uh, I'm out of my depth? We're all trying to be faithful to God, and He's called some of us to do teaching at the seminary level. He's called some of us to do podcasts, and I'm really thankful for the ministry that you have, and I would have no idea what to do if I were in your shoes right now. So I'm glad you're leading this.
0: I will do my best to stand in the gap for all of us and ask all the questions. So I'm right here with all the listeners who are intimidated by this series, and I appreciate you just meeting us where we're at you actually serve on staff at Covenant Theological Seminary. Can you tell us exactly what it is that you do there?
1: <laughs> when I figured that out, I'll let you know. <laughs> so I'm an associate professor of New Testament. My training and my background and PhD work is in New Testament studies, but also in human growth and development. And so My primary love is teaching New Testament, but I also do some applied theology things such as Christian formation and calling as well as counseling in the church too and so forth. So I have once been referred to by the president as a utility infielder, which means that I'm not good at any position, but I can kind of sort of do some things in multiple departments. And as a result, I just enjoy the interaction I get to have with students over multiple kind of different subjects.
0: That's really cool. And you aren't just a seminary prof. You have a family as well. You have a wife and a daughter, yes. correct? Yes,
1: that's right. So my wife, Catherine, and our daughter, Dorothy, who we call Dottie.
0: Oh, how old is she Dottie? She
1: just turned two recently, and she is the cutest, objectively the most beautiful child ever born. So I know you're a mom, and I'm sorry, but my child is more beautiful than yours.
0: <laughs> it's okay. My almost two-year-old is a little boy, so we'll go with yours as the cutest. Okay. He is the honriest. That's fair,
1: yeah. <laughs> I've looked at Catherine and i said, do other parents feel this way about their kids? It's just hard to imagine. So it's been great.
0: That's so precious. Well, if you hear any kids in the background, I think yours is at home right now. Mine are at home reading Magic School Bus with Mm -hmm. their dad. We might have some visitors at some point. Before you started serving on staff at Covenant Seminary, you were trained as an engineer.
1: That's correct. My dad was an engineer. I like tinkering with things. And so I assumed I'm going to be an engineer and I took a hand at it for a little while and didn't enjoy it. And at the same time, I was sensing a call to vocational ministry. So I pursued seminary after a little bit of time as a mechanical engineer.
0: When did you personally begin to study the New Testament more deeply, and how has that changed you?
1: During seminary, I would say so. Obviously, we'd take both Old Testament and New Testament classes, and I always just felt a greater affinity for the New Testament. I know Many people feel a greater affinity for an Old Testament. That's wonderful. But I just fell in love with the New Testament. And at the same time, I was also doing campus ministry at a a local university. And there were these students that are asking some pretty hard questions. And I started digging into the New Testament, the Bible as a whole, but the New Testament in particular, and figuring out what is it that we're actually trying to aim for as believers? What were were we seeking to grow into? At that time, there were a lot of books on dating and courtship and all that sort of stuff coming out. And I had some problems with some of them. And so I did a fairly in-depth study on what does dating look like according to the Bible. And
0: everybody's going to want to have you on for like a whole another episode on this now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That'll be dangerous, right? And then after that, I went into PhD and um, did my work on the nature of Christian maturity, and so I had to dig de- even further into the New Testament. And one of the things that was really encouraging. So, a common theme that happens for seminary students is they show up and they say, "You know, my devotional life just feels dry now because I've gone from reading the Bible because I enjoy it to every time I read the Bible, I'm doing all these technical disciplines." Uh, and that's not an uncommon problem when you come through seminary. But what I've found is that as you learn how to kind of bring up the fullness of who you are and the depth of the questions that you have, the Bible as a whole, and the New Testament in particular, right, it proves itself richer and able to go deeper constantly. You know, this is the Lord speaking to us through his word via his spirit. One of the things that's encouraging is we're never going to plumb the depths of who God is. We're never going to plumb the depths of his mind or his heart. And the body actually communicates that to us. And so as I've asked harder and harder questions about it, the Bible becomes more rich and more alive and able to speak to the complexity of what it means to be human in this world.
0: That is so true. It's so applicable for our lives. And yet, you know, when I look at something like the New Testament, I often get tripped up by all the complexities. Like there's Mm -hmm. 27 different books and there's various authors and we're looking at different genres. So how do you handle that? Like does the New Testament as a whole communicate one single congruent message that you can kind of like encapsulate for us?
1: So it does communicate one single message, absolutely. And there's ways in which you could encapsulate that, like Jesus is Lord, you know, Jesus has come, Jesus has died, he's been risen, he's ascended, he's coming back as a fulfillment of, as the climactic realization of God's redemptive purposes for all of His creation. Like that's one way to encapsulate it. And that's the unified message of the New Testament. But as you said, there's 27 books. Depending upon how you feel about the book of Hebrews, there's eight or nine authors. And so saying it communicates a single message is about the same way as saying that an orchestra plays a single symphony. It's very rare that all of the instruments and instrumentation that goes on in an orchestra is playing the exact same melody. Most of the time you have this beautiful harmony of... Overlaid, you know, tones and and sounds. And it's the same with the New Testament. You have nine authors, I hold a nine, nine authors that are communicating a collaborative and a cooperative, but nevertheless diverse single message. So you're married. I assume you have an engagement ring on with a diamond in it, right? Mm -hmm. If you hold it up, it's kind of like, oh, that's pretty. That's nice. But we rarely just look at it by just staring at it. We often turn it around and look at it at different angles. The nine authors are the turning it around and looking at the story of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and the implications that that has for us as his people, as his church that are seeking to be a redemptive presence in his creation. We've got nine different ways of talking about that with one another.
0: I found it really encouraging that you said you connect with like the New Testament. You feel kind of an affinity for it uh, because I actually feel that way about certain portions of the New Testament. And I feel a little bit like bad about that. Like, I feel like maybe I'm interpreting it improperly. Maybe I'm going about reading it wrongly because there are certain portions of that New Testament text that I actually am drawn towards. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. How should we go about uncovering that message that you mentioned? And what tips do you have for reading and studying the New Testament books?
1: Because there's a harmony of nine different authors, and each author's distinctive contribution is reflective of their personality, their their theological emphases. It is Mm -hmm. very natural for each of us to have an affinity with some authors more than others.
0: That's such a comfort to me. I'm like, oh, okay. It's normal.
1: It's, I mean, you okay. know, we're, we're human beings. We like the way some people think and others are a little more challenging for us. We like the way some talk and others are more difficult. And the same is true of the New Testament authors. The way that they communicate is easier to resonate with than some than others. And so it's good to know that you have that affinity because then you can be intentional about making sure that you don't neglect the other voices that are a little more challenging to hear. I say that every single semester to my New Testament students. And then just just this semester as I was planning for the spring, I looked down and I noticed, you know, I have never given an entire lecture to Jude. It's always kind of been lumped in with second Peter and just a quick comment on the side about here's how it's the same. And I'm actually failing to do exactly what I encourage others to do, which is to give Jude his own space to say things the way that he says things. And so one of the things I'd encourage people to do is to make sure that you try and attend to all of the distinctive voices, all of the different ways that the authors contribute, whether through narrative or you know discourse and epistles or apocalyptic literature and revelation, which is a fun one.
0: That one has been neglected over here. <laughs> Indeed.
1: It's a hard one. All right. The other tip I'd give is, what I would call observing the text first and then trying to do interpretation. So, actually trying to say, what does the text say? And pay attention, what are the assumptions that you and I make when we're reading that? Because it never fails. I'll, I'll put a, the passage of when Jesus comes back down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees the disciples who couldn't cast out the demon. And he says, you faithless generation, how long am I going to have to put up with you? And I ask the students, you know, what is Jesus saying? And they all say, well, Jesus is angry. Well, the text doesn't say that he's angry. How do we know that he's angry? We are trained to make assumptions and interpretations on the fly. And we need to pay attention to that when we're reading the text. So observing the text, actually restating what does it say, asking as many questions as we can, and then... Using whatever resources are available. A study Bible is a great thing. If you like reading commentaries or articles, great. If uh, you use resources online, but figuring out how do I answer the questions that I need to answer in order to try and find a faithful interpretation.
0: What is the value of cross-referencing between different portions of uh, the New Testament? What's the value in doing that kind of cross-referencing work?
1: Well, the cross-references are usually either assigned based upon either an affinity of language or an affinity of themes, right? So there's similar themes going on or it's the same words that are being used. And if it's the same author, you can start to see where are the places where this author is bringing up the same topics? What is the context in which they're speaking? If it's across the Bible, one of the things that you can see is, okay, this is another way in which there's a harmony amongst the different authors. So they're saying the same thing in different ways, and sometimes they use similar language. But the other thing is a principle of interpretation is allow the more clear passages to help, help interpret the difficult passages, which is not disregard the difficult, but it's to say, if something's challenging, let's name it as challenging and let's make sure we contextualize it within what we can say for sure from the New Testament.
0: Man, that's so helpful. You know, when I mentioned not feeling an affinity for certain passages, I feel really bad saying this. <laughs> this is like... uh but I struggle to connect with the Gospels. And I often just think to myself, Hunter, you must be the Pharisee of Pharisees because when I'm reading through the Gospels, I find it really hard to believe the miracles that I'm reading. And I also really struggle. Like I have to spend just an absolutely ridiculous amount of time studying a parable to actually gain some kind of understanding of what Jesus is trying to communicate. So What tips do you have for me? What encouragement do you have? How can we begin to understand what Jesus was trying to communicate, specifically in and through those uh, portions of the Gospels? Yeah,
1: The first encouragement that I'd give you is that the Bible actually normalizes what you just described
0: really? The other day I described it to another friend and they were like, oh, you need to pray about that. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's Jesus. You know what I'm saying?
1: There is this sense, well, I should automatically understand everything that Jesus is doing, even though this is something he was doing in a historical context that I'm fully not able to understand. But also the narratives themselves describe disciples who walked with him for three years and still didn't understand like what was going on. You've got the parable of the sower, which on the whole is not the most difficult parable. And they're saying, we don't get it. Can you explain that one to us? And the same, it, like you get to the end of John's gospel, you get the raising of Lazarus. And you know, someone shows up and says, oh, Lazarus has died. And the disciples say, well, I guess you can't fix that problem now. If you had just hurried up and gone there before he died, they had watched him raise multiple other people. But for some reason, they can't wrap their heads around the fact that he could actually raise Lazarus. So the Bible normalizes that I don't fully understand what's going on here. After that, I think the thing to say is, you know, miracles and parables, they're all revealing things about the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God. Miracles is showing his power over, his authority over, his creation. Parables are revealing the secrets and the ethics of the kingdom. And what miracles do is they cause us to ask, who is this guy that can you know, command the waves and the wind? So we're asking, who is Jesus? Whereas the parables consistently force us to ask the question, who am I? What kind of soil am I? Am I the rich fool? Am I someone who's outside the party? Miracles forces to come into contact with the person of Jesus and, and recognize his authority. And also, I'd say to see his good intent, because miracles never do damage to his creation. They always actually push towards what he intends for creation, for the wholeness, for the goodness. So he heals people. He demonstrates his authority over the, the non-human elements parables are putting in front of us the priorities, the values, the ethics of the kingdom of God and asking, how are you doing? Where do you line up? What are the ways in which you need to repent or change or grow or push further into the reality of kingdom life in this world?
0: I'm so glad I'm going to spend like hours editing this podcast (laughs) because I'm like, where's my pen? Like, I need to take some notes right here. So that is so good. I've actually... Never heard that before. So thank you for that. I think I'm going to have a framework through which to read the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, and maybe just help me, help me a little bit with that, because clearly I need it. Let's talk about the epistles, which the epistles, you can explain it far better than I, letters to the church. How can we today in 21st century America seek to understand the encouragement and the exhortations that New Testament authors were offering in their letters to the early church and how do they apply really to what we are experiencing today
1: so the letters that we have to deal with are you know so Paul's letters are primarily written to congregations that we can identify or individuals so Timothy Titus Philemon whereas the general epistles are referred to as such because it's more difficult to identify a particular congregation it's written to the church at large or maybe a particular region of the church. Uh, Hebrews is probably written to Christians in Rome, but we we can't say for sure, that sort of thing. Uh, And so that's why it's referred to as general epistles. And interestingly, in all of the epistles, whether to churches, individuals, or kind of regional or Christians at large, the large majority (laughs) of the ethics or the exhortations are fairly broad, fairly general in terms of talking about the Christian life and don't spell out what it looks like for you and me to live those out. So there's exhortations like, "Owe nothing to one another except love. Bear one another's burdens. Forgive someone if they have a complaint against you. I always think bear one another's burdens. Like how many burdens do I have to bear before I'm being faithful? I need to find six people, and what burdens do I take? Is it financial? Is it physical? Is it relational? What type of burden? The Bible doesn't spell that out for us, and the large majority of the exhortations in the New Testament are there. Then you have specific commands to a, a congregation or a person that are, are historically informed. You know, Some of them are things like, tell Archippus to fulfill his ministry. Well, that gives us a principle of it's, it's good to be faithful to what God has called us to do. But there's other things like 1 Corinthians 8. You know, Here's what you do when you're at a meal and someone has sacrificed the food to an idol. Most of us are not going to be dealing with that problem. You know, the same thing happens with Old Testament ethics. I, I don't know too many people who have oxes that are going around goring other people. So what do you do with, the, <laughs> with those commands that are historically located? Typically, the goal is to try and find what is the principle behind it? What is the character of the command? And what are the closest equivalencies in our our life today to those situations. So it might not be food sacrificed to an idol, but it might be an event that's done in some way to celebrate something that would be opposed to the kingdom of God.
0: The passage that's coming to my mind is like uh, the one in 1 Peter, where he's talking about, like specifically for women, because I know obviously the listeners are all Mm -hmm. women, the braiding of hair, the wearing of fine jewelry and clothes. So it's like, do we not braid our hair? Like, do we not, should we not wear jewelry? Mm -hmm. Like, is that a section like what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I was going to say there's the third category of ethics or exhortations, and those are the commands that show up that we don't like. They're either historically, culturally informed, or they push back against our cultural values. The exhortations, for instance, around uh, the attire that women are wearing. It's also in Paul. I th- I'm a Pauline scholar, so I, I think of it through First uh, Timothy 2. One of the things to note is the passage begins with an exhortation to men to pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So one thing that would be good is if pastors also focused on that verse as much as anything else. Secondly, the thing I'd say is, Understanding contextually why a woman might seek to wear costly attire, which within the context of antiquity where in most cultures, it was not acceptable for a woman to enter into the public forum and engage in debate. One of the ways that she could exercise influence is by being a benefactress and actually supporting a man financially so that that man will do what she wants. Uh, hmm. And so the goal is, th- the issue at stake is not really the attire. The issue at stake is, are you trying to exercise authority in an inappropriate way amongst the people of God? Hmm. That's the application for today. What are the ways in which you and I, so in antiquity, men, anger and quarreling, that's probably still our problem, right? But it, you know, what are the the issues or the ways in which you and I seek to unfaithfully or inappropriately exercise authority within the community of God's people?
0: Why is it important for us to know who it is that wrote the book that we're reading as we study the New Testament? And could you go into maybe one author as an example of how understanding that individual, their theology, their background, their personality, like you said, might help you to better interpret and apply the text at hand?
1: I think I'd say context informs so much of our communication with one another. Mm -hmm. the idea comes up, if I say, put the hammer down, right, that means something very different. If I am cheering on a Thor Marvel movie versus sitting in a boat, talking to the driver versus sitting in my garage, talking to my two year old daughter, like each of those, you know, contextually have very different implications. Uh, And the the same is true when we get to, to reading the Bible, understanding not only the context of the author, so who is this person, what's their background, what's the history of their story, some of which we can say with a lot of confidence, such as Paul, but others we know very little. But knowing as much as we can helps us appreciate what's informing the ethos behind, the character behind what he is saying in this particular moment. And then also understanding, as best we can, the historical context into which the author is speaking. One of the challenges in that is that eventually arrives at what's called mirror reading. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's where we try and call a particular letter for as much information about uh, what could potentially be going on. So, for instance, we look at Galatians and we see all these comments about Judaizers and we say, oh, there must be this group going around. And then what we do is we construct a historical circumstance or context based upon those comments and then reflect it back on the text. So we mirror the interpretation of the text based upon information we get from the text. It's called mirror reading. The danger is we could get it wrong. We could get the context wrong and end up in a situation where we're interpreting the Bible wrong. And so we always have to hold this those historical reconstructions loosely and see if we've gotten it right, or or if we need to make some changes. But thinking through an example of understanding the author and the context in which they're speaking, so Paul's an easy one, I could try another as well, but I often think of Paul's letter to Philemon, which is the shortest, and it's at the end of it, and it's frequently overlooked. And interestingly, within critical scholarship, a lot of times Paul gets portrayed as highly manipulative, so he says things to Philemon such as, look, I'm an apostle and I could tell you what to do, but I'm going to appeal to you just in case you actually want to do it out of your own free will. And, you know, I'm an old guy and I'm in prison, you know, if you care at all about that. And Anisimus, this person I'm sending back to you is actually my heart. It's like you're cutting my heart out if you take him away from me. And I'm confident that you're going to do more than I command you to do or ask you to do. <laughs> but just in case, why don't you go ahead and prepare a guest room? Because I'm on my way. So there's any number of ways that you can portray Paul as highly manipulative in that letter. But what's interesting is you have to do that if you overlook this one little statement. He says, though I am bold enough that I could command you, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal for you to you as a brother. What's important to remember about Paul is he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He wanted to excel. He wanted to be above and beyond everyone else. He wanted to be in charge. He got the the letters from the priest so that he could go and take people prisoner um, because he thought they were heretics. He wanted to be the guy. And now, because of his encounter with Jesus, he is someone who wants to operate out of an economy of love. Hmm. And when you see that in Philemon, what's fascinating is then you go and look at all of his other letters and the amount of time that he spends affirming the ministry of those who are not apostles. So he's an apostle. He could just say, look, this is all about me. But instead he says, look at all my fellow workers. Look at my fellow prisoners. Look at my fellow soldiers. They are faithful brothers and they're doing great work. You should rejoice in them. You should listen to them. He spends all this time actually affirming others. And When I came to see that, it changed the way that I read Paul.
0: Hmm. So what do you think about those of us who have an affinity towards Paul? Like, what does that say about us?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have an affinity towards Paul. He's he's who I studied in my PhD work. But when I got back here to seminary and started teaching, one of the first things I had to teach was 1 John. And I kept on trying to make John sound like Paul. I tried to fit John into a Pauline mold. Paul is the kind of guy that says, let's let's talk about what union with Christ is, or what the overlap of the ages is, or what the gospel is, and let's just kind of lay it out. Here's the way in which the Christian life works in a in a more systematic way. John is this, you know, he weaves in and out of themes, and he's the apostle of the light and the love and the glory of God breaking into this world. And and so being able to hear them. And their distinctive voices is important. But knowing that you have an affinity with Paul, there's nothing wrong with that. That's normal, going back to that. But it's also mm-hmm. that the warning that comes with it is don't try and make the other authors sound like Paul. Because yeah. they're not Paul. They're they're John, and they're Jude, and they're Peter, and we need to, to hear them. So I think what it says about you that you like Paul is that you're correct. And that you're, you're like me and that we're, we've gotten it right.
0: <laughs> it does make sense when you describe him as like systematic. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no wonder I feel an affinity for that dude. That's really cool. If somebody wants to just do a faithful job of, like you said, getting a better understanding of the specific author that they're reading, obviously you want to read the text just over and over and familiarize yourself with the way they write mm-hmm. and, and all of that. But like, what's the most helpful way to go about doing that?
1: There are helpful things like study Bibles that will have introductions, and some of them are even lengthier than others. Uh, so some will have pages of introductory mm-hmm. information, and that will have a lot yeah. of the, the contextual information. Some things we can say based upon our, just our knowledge of history. So, for instance, we can learn about what was going on in Rome during roughly the time that Paul was writing to it, based upon just historical records. And so we can construct a historical context around which we need to ask, what's going on particularly in the church? You can use commentaries. Some commentaries are geared for people who have learned the original languages of Greek and Hebrew, but others are accessible to those who who don't have the original languages, and those are always good things to use. Many of them are available in an online format. Many seminaries, so Covenant, where I work, many other seminaries, we have a lot of free resources available online that teach through particular books. That that would be another place that you could find resources to learn more about the context and the the issues in play in a particular letter.
0: Love it. Well, one portion that I mentioned I have found particularly tricky. I think when I first became a believer, I was like, let's study Revelation. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, let's not. <laughs> So can we go there like how even I don't know this is asking too much of you in the format that we have right now but where should we even start with revelation
1: Yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a colleague who's come up with a little acrostic to uh, or acronym to talk about it. he calls it cope which is the first letter of C and it's just to say confess that it's hard
0: That's perfect
1: The very first thing is to say you're not abnormal there's not something wrong with you. You didn't miss the secret memo that, you know, if you just knew this one piece of information, then the book of Revelation would suddenly be easy. In my opinion, it's intended to be complex. It's the one letter in the New Testament that fits into the category of what's called apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. And apocalyptic is revelation from heaven. And so it's filled with prophecy and apocalyptic imagery. And if you think about it, It's fascinating, but prophecy intentionally obscures the future that it's seeking to reveal. Jesus is a pretty smart guy. He could have just said things like, listen, in 70 AD, the temple's going to be destroyed. Well, later on down the road, there's going to be a schism between the church. And then in, let's choose a number, 3022, I'm coming back. So be on the lookout for me then. So he could have just said it in plain English, but instead he chose to use all of these symbols and images and and narratives of what's going to happen in the future, both to encourage us and also to call us to faithfulness. If Jesus had said, I'm not coming back until the year 3000 something, well, that takes some pressure off of me. But instead, prophecy is calling us to be watchful, to be always alert, seeking to be faithful to the Lord in every context of our life. And so the book of Revelation is doing that first, you know, so it's got the letters to the seven churches in the first, you know, the first chapter is actually introduction. And here's my vision of Jesus. Then there's the letter to the seven churches, but starting in chapter four, all the way to the end is what I call the vision of what must take place. And it's, you know, the angel says come up here and I'll show you what must take place. And what happens is we walk through human history again and again and again. We just get these pictures of, here's what's going to happen throughout the course of events in history. So it's not this head of this particular beast represents this particular country or this particular, and the Antichrist isn't this particular person, because if we try and assign a particular person or a particular institution or a particular nation to a particular symbol... Well, the symbiology or the semiotics of that is always going to be changing historically. Every generation of Christians try to figure out, well, which head of the beast is this thing? Rather, what we see is, well, we get the seven trumpets and we get the seven bowls and we get the various different images of the beast and the woman, and we see the conflict that's going on between God and his people with Satan and the forces of evil and we go through that cycle and then we come to the end of it we see the worship of god in heaven but then we get to go through that cycle all over again right and so we see multiple iterations of describing this conflict that goes on all of it's intended to communicate one very clear message so the one clear message of revelation here it is you ready
0: okay yes
1: jesus wins That much we can say for sure. At the end of all this, he is coming back. He will dwell with us. We will be his people and there will be the victory that God's intends. In the midst of that, what we're called to do is to wrestle with the images that are given to us and try and understand what is God telling us about what's going on in history. There's going to be wars, there's going to be famines, there's going to be conflict and strife, there's going to be persecution, and they're going to comes and ebbs and flows, and we have to figure out what it means to be faithful in this particular moment as his people.
0: What's the value in that wrestling in those texts, whether it be revelation or another particularly tricky text in the New Testament that we might not be able to walk away with an encapsulation or an application that we can like apply to the realities of what we're walking in that particular day?
1: As someone who also, you know, tries to get a little bit of work done or rest done before his daughter wakes up first thing in the morning, you know, it's always the debate of who's going to go in and get her. I can appreciate that there's limited time and limited energy. Yeah, And I think I'd say the value is in the fact that the Bible is God speaking to us. So this is him telling us what he wants us to hear. And therefore, we don't always have to have an immediate practical application or an immediate takeaway. Those moments are nice and they're good, or, you know, a moment that's encouraging when we read something, and I, feel, I feel actually as though that was God speaking to me specifically. But a lot of times it's hearing him talking, going, I mean, I have to chew on that one for a little while. And therefore the value is coming into contact with the living Lord who is speaking to us through his word. And we get to hear the whole counsel of scripture.
0: I think that's really helpful because actually as I've learned to do a little bit better job like interpreting the text and studying it doing the observation piece there's a lot of times that I don't walk away with like <laughs> a practical application I just go by hey I'm making some investments in this spiritual bank of understanding. And I hope one day it's going to reap a reward.
1: (laughs) I think that's a really, especially in the West, especially in America, it's kind of, if there isn't a practical application, if there isn't something that I can pragmatically do with it right now, I'm not sure if it has any value. And while there's moments where that is a helpful disposition to have, it is not the best in relationship. You wouldn't treat a conversation with your husband that way. You want to treat a conversation with your child that way. It's like, if I can't get a practical application out of talking with my two-year-old, then why am I talking to her? It's the time spent in communication that actually builds the relationship.
0: So rich, so good. So if you had to sum everything up and just say, all right, to really understand the New Testament, you've got to understand this. What would it be?
1: The immediate response I want to say, well, Jesus.
0: Hey, we're all right.
1: Another one that comes to mind is is actually glory. Then the last one that comes to mind is love. And so how about this? I'm going to go for the, I'm being too much of a Paul scholar right now. I'm going to go for the Pauline trifecta of faith, hope, and love.
0: (laughs) I love it.
1: Faith, hope, and love. So our faith is in Jesus who has come for us because he wanted to be with us and who is actually been for us what we could not be for ourselves and yeah because we are united with him we actually get to participate in everything that he has done including the glorious resurrected life that he already now lives with the father and therefore one of the things that comes to my mind is the new testament is saying jesus has accomplished the glory that God intended for humanity from the very beginning. And we lost in the rebellion Mm. and therefore within nothing less than glory is what he's going after within that reality, within the fact that Jesus has actually defeated sin and death, we can now love God and love one another uh, and seek to to live out of that love uh, as we engage with the world that's around us.
0: That is just so good. So good. Thank you very much for that. You're making me excited to go back and read the Gospels again. Good. (laughs) (laughs) So for all the listeners who feel the same way and they want to go study the New Testament, what is one practical step that you can offer them? This could be anything, a resource, a course, a practice that you engage in. What do you recommend for us?
1: So I've mentioned other resources. I think actually one very important practice It's a little bit hard to do, but it's important. If you Mm -hmm. want to study the New Testament, what I would recommend is that you read and talk with people you disagree with a lot. Hmm. There is something about having to wrestle with the views of those who differ that forces us to figure out where are the gaps in my own understanding, my own interpretation. Uh, It also reinforces, I I think, one of my good friends during doctoral work, Michael, he and I agree on more than we disagree on, but we disagreed on some things. But I am so thankful for the time that we got to spend talking with one another and sharpening each other as we wrestled with the truth of of God's Word. And and not just uh, from other traditions, but even from other cultures, reading outside our context.
0: That's really great advice. Well, Brad, one of the things that I have always historically asked every guest on the show, now that we've made it through the hard part, uh-huh. just so that they can get to know you a little bit better on a personal level, what are your three simple joys?
1: <laughs> I really, I mean, immediately what comes to mind, and this is this is not being cheesy, but my wife and daughter.
0: oh
1: So Catherine and I didn't get married late in life, but we got married a little later in life, and we didn't know if we were going to be able to have kids. And so the fact that Dottie came along has just been... Such a gift. And and just time with Catherine has been this really redemptive, enjoyable season. And so uh, immediately, I think spending time with them. I mean, obviously, parenting gets frustrating every once in a while, but it's just fun. It's humorous to to watch her grow and to, to get to do that with Catherine.
0: I've heard there's a lot of value in being like an older parent. Like you you see, yeah. you're like, oh, thank God I'm parenting right now as opposed to when I was younger in years.
1: I hope that maybe I've learned a little more about myself than when I was in my 20s and that that will be beneficial to Dottie, I hope. (laughs) Another simple joy is actually it is time with friends. I'm very thankful that at this season of life, I have five really close friends and I know a lot of folks can't say that, but being able to see them and to walk through the hard times together, but also to just have fun together, I'm really thankful for that. And then the last one is, so this is a guy thing, right? Um, Yeah, uh, yeah. let's hear it. I like to to sail. And I also like to, I I have a a little British roadster that I I got. And uh, so, you know, anything that kind of, in contact with the outdoors what
0: is a british roadster like a motorcycle no,
1: it's so think of like a mazda miata but a lot slower and less uh less impressive right so that's a british okay. roadster so it's an, it's an old one
0: that's awesome yeah, it's fun
1: I, I tore it apart i'm trying to get it to run again but it's just fun I, I just learned because you know because i'm the systematic thinker i learned that i need to figure out how to just Pay attention to the world around me and getting out on a sailboat or getting out in a car that has a top down and just enjoying the wind going by, seeing the trees, those sorts of things. It's just it's a simple pleasure. The
0: essence of a simple joy. You know, when you mentioned that oftentimes when people are going to seminary, I imagine on staff at a seminary, there is this tension as well. The reality of studying the Bible being like an aspect of your job. How do you maintain like an affection when you approach the text? And how do you just, I don't know, come before the Lord with just a soft heart and maintain like that desire, like you mentioned, just to grow in your relationship with Him and not just to grow in your knowledge about? him?
1: There was a time when I wanted to be the expert. I wanted to be the guy who had all the answers. And I wanted to be impressive. And so that was about having the knowledge. And I think the, the simple answer is, uh, well, life happened. And you know, going through hardships and struggles and pain mm-hmm. and loss refocuses the questions that you ask and the way that you come to the text. And so what was comforting to me is that in the, the dark nights of the soul kind of moments was this deep seated conviction and comfort of knowing that God was present and that he cared. Mm. And I might not like what he's doing. I might not like what he's saying, but I know that he's good. Those types of experiences help me you know, still ask academic questions or technical questions of the text, but do it from a disposition of, I'm I'm asking a question of the Lord who is who is good and who is loving and who is for me.
0: That's really good. You know, with the Journey Women podcast, it was really born out of this idea that God had graciously given me just a host of mentors that I wanted to be able to share with people. It's now expanded to mentors and mentors of mentors and friends of mentors like yourself. Mm-hmm. And it makes me want to ask the question to every guest Who is it that's had the greatest impact on your relationship with the Lord?
1: Mm-hmm. That is a tough question. I mean, anytime I ask what's the one thing, I always think, well, I've got four. Uh, you know, um, That's perfect. Yeah.
0: You can make it whatever you want.
1: <laughs> the person that does come to mind was actually uh, my first mentor when I became a Christian. So I, I became a Christian in college and my first mentor was a campus minister. His name was Chris. What I learned from him was the way in which he knew how to speak to and talk about what's going on in life in a way that was honest and direct and winsome and wasn't shameful. Uh, It it was just, let's just deal with this. And there's something about that that has laid that foundation for me of Mm -hmm. realizing, okay, God is someone who does not mince words, but also does it in a way that doesn't break the bruise reed. I'm very thankful for the way in which Chris taught me to be honest about what's going on in life as I engage in relationship with Lord.
0: That's so cool. Actually, when I was talking through who we should have on this series, I reached out to my dear friend, Courtney Doctor. Mm And she told me, as I was very intimidated to talk to any seminary professor on a personal one-on-one basis, that's something that you do so well, just bringing things down to the lay level, helping bring things out of the clouds and to help them come into practicalities. And so I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to have been able to chat with you about the New Testament today and for you to get to do that with us. Thank you so much for joining us on the Dirty Women Podcast. Well, thank you. It's
1: been an honor to, to be here with you, and I'm really thankful for the opportunity to do it. I also pray that it continues to be a fruitful ministry for you.
0: We pray this episode is a resource that you can revisit again and again as you continue to ponder the reality that Christ came and that he is coming again. Be sure to check out the show notes where you can find all the details on our website at journeywomanpodcast.com. Next week is our very last episode of the year. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. Also, if you're feeling generous, would you consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes for Journey Women? We read every single one of them, like this one from LB Grind that says, Every episode is thoughtfully and intentionally created to remind you that our hope is found in Jesus alone. I love the diversity of the guests and the theme seasons. This is the only podcast I listen to every week. Thanks, LB Grind. And thanks to all of you who have taken a few minutes to leave a review on iTunes. It really does help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it helpful on their journeys to glorify God. Today's episode was edited by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On, Sound Off. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here for our last episode of 2020 next Monday. Have a great week.